This time on Geek Pod Blue. I used to be a rock star. Now I hold doors open for my cats. Warning, station is now code blue. edition of Geekapod Blue. I'm your host, Hugh, and no lie, I was actually considering hiding a single line of lyrics from the Guns N' Roses song, Welcome to the Jungle, in every single podcast, uh, for as many podcasts as it took to get through the entire song, until I got to the lyric that said, Sha-na-na-na-na-na-na-na, knees, knees. And I knew that the second I said that, the jig would be up. So this week, uh, first of all, I want to uh, call out uh, somebody who's been listening to the show. I want to say hi to Mike Fitzgerald. Hi, Mike. I'm actually waving at you, and if this was a show with a camera, you'd be able to see that. Uh, Mike Fitzgerald has been listening to the show. He's been responding on the Twitter and sending an email. So, Mike, it is fantastic to have you on board, and uh, I really do appreciate your support. I also want to address the Twin Peaks finale, because Twin Peaks The Return finally ended, and I did watch this, and... Man, it was such a strange experience because I still don't know what happened, according to the most of the actors that were on the show. They're not sure exactly what happened. I will say that as the show went on, I found myself enjoying watching it, but it still didn't make any sense. I still am not sure exactly what happened, and maybe you don't need to know exactly what happened. I still think that that's kind of a fault to the show. I mean, with something this high profile, we should have some kind of an idea of what the hell we just watched. So I, I do think that it wasn't perfect, and uh, I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of glad I watched it, but maybe that's just because I spent 18 hours being confused, and by the end, I kind of dug a few of the characters. I, I might be a little softer on it now, but trust me, uh, even if you liked the original Twin Peaks, this might be a stretch for you, because it's a very difficult show to keep up with. Uh, I am not going to give it my seal of approval by any means, but if you're going to give it points for atmosphere, it certainly oozed that. If you're going to give it uh, points for coherent story, you're going to have all your extra points left over uh, because there is no coherent story. Now, on to this week's lead story. I was having a, a bit of a problem trying to come up with something. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, and then suddenly it was like the universe itself spoke to me. That is right, the return of It's Science, or maybe in this case we should call it It's Science Maybe. Now, I ran across this in my search for a lead story this week, and I think you will all find this very interesting. Today we are going to talk about panpsychism. Now, on some levels, it sounds like it could be the ground for some kind of god claptrap, but we're going to stick to the actual science being worked on. Uh, but let me give you some groundwork first. Now, per Wikipedia, in philosophy, panpsychism is the view that consciousness, mind, or soul, psyche, is a universal and primordial feature of all things. Panpsychists see themselves as minds in a world of mind. Panpsychism is one of the oldest philosophical... philosophical 
philosophical, good lord, philosophical theories and has been ascribed to philosophers like Thales, Parmenides, wow, I didn't practice these ahead of time, Parmenides, Plato, Averro, Spinoza, Leibniz, William James, do I even need to read these all? Panpsychism can also be seen in ancient philosophies such as Stoicism, Taoism, Vedanta, Mahana and Buddhism. During the 19th century, panpsychism was the default theory in the philosophy of the mind, but it saw a decline during the middle years of the 20th century with the rise of logical positism. The recent in interest in the hard problem of consciousness has revived interest in panpsychism. Now, we're not really going to talk too much about the philosophical side of this, as that looks like to be a bit of a rabbit hole. However, understanding what it is, what it is, is important to the science part of this story. Now, the underlying principle of panpsychism is that all things have some sort of consciousness. Not equal levels of consciousness, but at least a little kernel of a universal consciousness. The very first Greek philosopher, Thales, stated that everything is full of gods. Using the magnets as an example, as they are inanimate objects that act on each other and other objects. Plato took this further, advocating for something he called the world soul, or anima mundi. He said, this world is indeed a living being endowed with the soul and intelligence, a single visible living entity containing all other living entities by which their nature are all related. Now, the idea of everything being part of some cosmic universal consciousness can be applied in many ways. This can also explain how similar species of animals have been shown to evolve the same adaptations while living in different and distant environments. The idea of convergent evolution has been around for a while. It also feeds into the idea of morphic fields driving evolution. Go do some homework, kids. So the basic idea is that everything in nature has a purpose and a consciousness of sorts that connects it to everything else. This creates a complex world where everything is a moving part, even if the things, even the things that aren't moving, like Geekpot Gold. Now let's take this idea and scale it up, and I mean all the way up, to the size of the entire universe. Let's take this concept and apply it to all of the things in the cosmos, from planets to stars and meteors, Imagine that every single thing in existence, including us, is just one tiny brain cell or firing neuron in a brain the size of everything that there is. Now, this is where Gregory Matloff comes in. He is a veteran scientist at the New York City College of Technology. He recently published a paper that stated humans might be a part of the rest of the universe in a sort of proto-consciousness field that could extend throughout all of space, basically saying that the cosmos is self-aware. While this sounds like the start of another big comic book event, it is something supported by many prominent scientists to differing degrees. Not everybody agrees with all of it. I suppose the real question is, what is consciousness? Now, narrowing it down to one different definition certainly helps in understanding this idea. So let's say consciousness on a very basic level is the ability to recognize your past state and affect your future state. In more normal terms, let's put it like this. I wake up in the morning. I recognize that I was just sleeping in my gym jams, and those would not be appropriate to go out in. Thus, I make the choice to change into jean shorts and a t-shirt so that I can go do stuff. So am I, I am aware of my circumstance prior to that choice. I'm aware that I'm wearing my pajamas. That information, that jammies are not good grocery shopping apparel, informs my decision to dress in proper clothes. Matloff argues that we might be able to see this kind of behavior in the universe at large. Now, a disclaimer. He is not saying that an asteroid thought to itself, man, this is boring, just flying through space. Oh, look, a planet of giant lizards. Let's go check that shit out. 
Uh, this is on a much more subtle level. Uh, that things have properties determined by nature, that there could be a connection between all of these things that causes objects to behave the way they do. Matloff says it's all very speculative, but it's something we can either validate or falsify. So clearly the man's not drinking his own Kool-Aid. He just thinks the idea is too important not to explore. Decades ago, Sir Roger Pemrose, a British physicist, posited that consciousness is rooted in the statistical rules of quantum physics as they apply to the microscopic spaces between neurons in the brain. That was a mouthful. Uh, as I understand that, that's saying consciousness exists in the space between brain thingies. In 2006, a German physicist named Bernard Heche expanded upon this idea. He said that the quantum fields that exist throughout all of space, sometimes called the quantum vacuum, produce and transmit consciousness, just like the spaces in our brain. This consciousness will then emerge in any system that is complex enough and has the required energy to produce consciousness. Not just a brain, but any structure that met the requirements. Now, think of it like this. I put blueprints to build a cell phone into the hands of people throughout history. I give it to a caveman, and he, he starts a fire. He is not complex enough or have enough energy to use that to its full potential. Next, I give it to someone from the Middle Ages. They promptly realize it is more used to them as toilet paper. So eventually, we get to someone from our age, someone with the needed complexity as in scientific engineering and knowledge and energy as in the tools to build it. And bam, everybody has dog ears and birthday hats on Snapchat. If you look at that consciousness as those blueprints, it means that anything capable of consciousness will acquire it from the shared universal consciousness. Going back to the ability to alter behavior, Matloff began looking for examples of this in the cosmos. He happened upon something called Paranagos discontinuity. It states that on the average, cooler stars orbit our galaxy faster than the hotter ones. Most scientists believe this is due to interactions between stars and gas clouds. Matloff considered a different explanation. He noted that the anomaly appears in stars that are cool enough to have molecules in their atmosphere. Having molecules increases their chemical complexity. Could that jumping complexity be enough for a star to join this universal consciousness? He also noted that some stars seem to emit jets that point only in one direction. Now, this is an odd and unbalanced process that could cause a star to alter its motion. Uh, could this be on purpose? And would we ever be able to prove it? Again, we are not saying that a star thinks, I want to go over there. However, it could be the overall design of the universe that the stars move to the place where it will have the best effect. One would think... Uh, that Paranago's discontinuity is caused only by specific conditions, and if that's the case, then it should vary from place to place as the conditions change. However, if it is something in the fabric of the universe, like consciousness, it should be the same everywhere. Now, current data from stellar catalogs appear to support this latter view. Uh, we're not sure yet, but we're getting some more information, and there will be new data from the Ga Gaia Star Mapping Telescope to look at in 2018. Moving on, another scientist, Christopher Koch, is tackling this problem from a different angle, looking to see if simply physical systems that are not biological or organic can also be conscious. He takes us inspiration from something known as the integrated information theory. This goes back to the idea that consciousness can be defined by the ability of a system to take note of its previous state and to influence its future state. Kind of like when you say, I'm never drinking again. 
Citing our brains in his example of that process, he says, We are more complex. We have more self-awareness, but other systems have awarenesses too. We may share this property of experience, and this is what consciousness is, the ability to experience anything from the most mundane to the most refined religious experience. One way he is testing this is to study brain-impaired patients, to see if their information responses match with the biological measure of their consciousness. Another idea they have, but they have not implemented it yet, is to wire the brains of two mice together. They want to see how the integrated consciousness of the animals will change as the amount of information increases. The theory is that at some point they should merge into a single consciousness. They expect that we'll be able to run tests like this on human subjects in the future as well. And that certainly sounds interesting to me. Imagine your consciousness wired into somebody else's, sharing a brain with somebody else. Might even be something like what twins go through when something happens to one, the other one knows it. That certainly supports the uh, theory or idea of something connecting at least certain consciousness together. Now, Koch thinks that what is distinctive about living things is not that they are alive, but their complexity. He gives an example of comparing the sun to bacteria. While the sun might be a much larger form uh, than uh, bacteria from a mathematical perspective, it is also much simpler. If a star has an internal life that would allow it to feel, it would feel much less than an E. coli as a bacteria is more complex in nature. This all brings us back to Roger Penrose, and his theories linking consciousness to quantum mechanics are fascinating. In his book, The Road to Reality, he writes, the laws of physics produce complex systems, and these complex systems lead to consciousness, which then produces mathematics, which then can encode in a succinct and inspiring way the very underlying laws of physics that gave rise to it. Basically saying that a complex system, like humans, eventually gained the knowledge to understand the very laws of the universe that created them. This is illustrated by the role of the observer in quantum theory. You have fuzzy particles that exist in a state of uncertainty. It's only when somebody looks at these particles that they snap into a definite location. Basically saying the entire universe, to a degree, exists in a state of uncertainty until observed by a conscious being. Almost as if our consciousness connects to the cosmic consciousness to determine the state of the universe. Pretty trippy, huh? It's almost as if man participates in the act of creation that most would attribute to a god. Now, this brings me back to the original thought of, can this all be true without the presence of a quote-unquote God? You know, are we talking about, is that what we're talking about when we talk about co cosmic consciousness or not? Now, anyone who knows me knows that I am as resistant to the concept of God as Republicans are to the poor having health care. But I think that this can be true without there being a holy motivator. There's an illustration that I think can remove the idea of a deity from almost any process, and let me explain. And uh, this is certainly, uh, this is my own personal concept. Uh, it is based on, you know, things that other people have said, but this, this particular example is something I did not pull from anywhere else. Now, imagine I have a whole Walmart parking lot. All paved in concrete, except for one six by six inch patch of dirt right smack dab in the middle. Then I toss grass seed over the entire parking lot. We come back in six months and there's a lovely patch of grass surrounded by a sea of concrete. Now, the theist or um, God-believing person would say, look at that grass surrounded by no grass. It's a miracle that this grass ever grew. It must have been God's will. Now, the scientist would hear that remark and counter with, 
Is it possible that the gas grew not because a god wanted it to, but because this one spot was the only one that met the conditions for grass to take root? We can apply this idea to everything, from galactic consciousness to why we are the only life we're aware of in the universe. It could be that a universal consciousness was inevitable once the universe became complex enough, not by design, but by the nature of the universe and all of its things themselves. At least if we're able to prove this, I would be okay with the idea of a universal consciousness that moves things along, as long as it sprang from those things itself. This means we get to take credit. I mean, who wouldn't want to be responsible for and part of a living thinking universe? Although I am pretty sure our corner got hammered last year and now has a hangover. Hopefully we get our shit together before another asteroid talks to his buddies and decides we are a lost cause. And uh, that's going to wrap up the lead story this week. I hope you guys enjoyed this. I did put a lot of work into this. Please email me your questions and comments, and we are going to move on to some news for your ears. And the first big news item of the week is that J.J. Abrams is going to be directing Star Wars 9. That is right. Uh, Colin Trevorrow uh, was fired last week. It was a very high-profile firing. A lot of stuff has come out about him being very difficult to work with. And uh, just like uh, when Disney replaced, uh, put Ron Howard on the Han Solo film, they've decided to go with a safe bet. Now, it's clear that they want people in charge of this franchise that they know they can trust and are going to deliver uh, a, a product that meets their standards. Now, that's not to say that Star Wars couldn't benefit from having some of their side stories directed by uh, some other folks. I mean, Gareth Edwards' uh, Rogue One was uh, fantastic, uh, but there's also some possibly some stories behind the scene there. We're not really sure exactly what happened there, but I can certainly understand Disney wanting to take these billion-dollar tentpole movies and make them a bit safe. Now, some people may say, oh, well, that means we're not ever going to get a different view or a different lens or something like that, and I mean, not that I'm opposed to seeing that in the Star Wars universe, but I would ask, do we really need it? I mean, truth be told, we had three good movies, three horrible movies, and now we're finally getting a batch of good movies. I would be fine with some, I don't want to say cookie cutter, but some Star Wars movies that fit the mold at least for a few years and for a few uh, sequels. I don't necessarily need to see anything change yet because... I truthfully feel like I haven't seen a good Star Wars movie since I was a kid up until The Force Awakens, so I'm okay with that for now. Uh, we're going to have to wait and see how they take it in the future, but I mean, you got to imagine, at least in the main series, they want those movies in trusted hands, and I certainly do not blame them. Next up, Marvel has announced that the original, the real deal Jean Grey is going to be returning to comics this December. Now, there's not a whole lot of details about this, but I'm thinking it might be tied to the status quo change they've been talking about, which I think that maybe Generations might be part of, but a while back Marvel said they were going to be bringing their comics back to a, uh, how do you want to put it, uh, back to a standing that would be recognizable by people who have been reading con comics all their lives. Uh, and that's due to the fact that a lot of the teams have changed, people have died, things are kind of all messed up. And if you go to pick up, a, you know, an X-Men comic uh, just a few years ago, now it's getting pretty close. But, you know, just to get last year, you go to pick up an X-Men comic and you, you watch the animated series when you were a kid. Like, oh, maybe I want to read this. And you're looking like this and nobody you know. None of the characters or anybody you've heard of. It's just kind of a mess. They're trying to streamline things and 
make it accessible for old and new readers. And I'm guessing that bringing Jean Grey back is part of that, uh, because she was one of the uh, original lineup of the most recognized X-Men, and certainly allows people who are just casual comics readers or casual observers of comics media to pick up a comic and see a character they're familiar with. We're certainly going to have to keep eyes on that because I can't wait to see exactly how they do this. Because, you know, much like, uh, you know, people always say that, you know, no one stays dead in comics, but she's been gone for a long time. She, there's been some reappearances through some, some trickery and things like that, but she's legitimately been dead for a very long time. Next up, if you guys paid 300 bucks on eBay for one of these, I feel really, really bad for you. Nintendo has announced that not only are they going to have a larger production one for the Super Nintendo Entertainment Classic, or SNES Classic, which releases this fall, and they're going to continue producing it and shipping it throughout 2018, at least partly, they're also going to be bringing back the NES Classic, the original Nintendo Classic. Now, as you know, they... This came out last year uh, for the holidays. They were not able to even come close to meeting demand, and these things were going for you know two, three, four, five hundred dollars on eBay. Now Nintendo has come out and said, if you want a, a SNES Classic, don't pay more than seventy nine ninety nine. They're going to do their best to actually meet the demand so that everybody that wants one can buy one uh, within a reasonable amount of time. They don't want anybody paying any more than $79.99 for this thing. I would assume they're going to do the same thing with the NES Classic, because hey, I'll tell you, I've looked at the SNES Classic. The game lineup doesn't really thrill me. Uh, it looks to be mostly RPGs. I think I might have talked about that at one point in the past. Uh, but the NES Classic, yeah, I, if that was available again, I would totally pick one up. The problem was, it came out during the holiday season. Now, if you have kids and you don't make a lot of money, you understand the idea of, I don't want anything for me, I want to get stuff for the kids. My older kids wouldn't care about it, and I mean, maybe my five-year-old could be tricked into playing a NES Classic, but, uh, well, she's six now, uh, but she's not really old enough to be doing that anyway, so I couldn't hide this as a gift for, for anybody else. You know, getting the, the NES Classic would have been for me, and that just wasn't possible during the holiday season. Hopefully this releasing during the summer means, uh, you know, I'll, I'll ask my wife for permission to go pick one up, and I will be jamming out on those classic games like you wouldn't believe. Next up, and I have been waiting to hear about this, Patty Jenkins has finally signed on to, to direct Wonder Woman 2. It is about freaking time. I mean, how much money does this movie have to make before they're like, yeah, just give her what she wants. Now, I've seen some estimates saying that she's going to get between 5 and $7 million for uh, directing Wonder Woman 2. Also came out that she made a million dollars on the first Wonder Woman, which, while that's certainly not uh, a bad chunk of change, that is not even close to what somebody who directs a movie that's made that much money should be getting. Uh, apparently, she's also worked out a fairly good deal on the back end, so she'll be making uh, money off the profits as well. And one can only imagine, you know, considering that she seems to have the golden touch, that Wonder Woman 2, even if it's a bad movie, is going to make at least as much money as the first one. Because usually, if you have a successful movie, you can release a not quite as good one and still make a lot of money. It's just, you know, people don't know that it's not going to be as good yet. The third time around, then you're in trouble. Uh, but I'm fairly confident that she's going to turn out a good second installment of this series. Now, finally, I uh, read something quite interesting today, and uh, I don't know if anybody out there has seen the new movie It, which is an adaptation of a Stephen King novel. Uh, but uh, there's been some interesting uh, information that came out about that this week. Uh, the director said... Uh, and I was going to try to pronounce his name, but I have no idea how to say it, so I just wrote the director down on my notes. Uh, but basically, it, there's a scene in it 
where uh, Pennywise appears to Pennywise is the evil clown. He appears to the uh, the the characters when they're younger because if you don't know the story, part of it takes place in the past when the um the, the characters are kids. Part of it takes place while they're adults. They basically have a run in with this evil clown deeming when they're kids, and then. 20 years later, you know, as they're all adults, they end up having to face him again. Now, when they're kids, now the original book was set in the 50s, so Pennywise appeared to the children as the universal classic movie monsters, you know, because that's what would scare a kid in the 50s. You know, if you're in the 50s, your horror movies are Dracula, the Wolfman, Frankenstein, the creature from the Black Lagoon. You know, that's what scared you back then, because the universal uh, monster movies of the 30s were, you know, pretty much what you still had. Now... The director said that there were serious talks about changing that up in the new film. Because the new film bumps the time frame up to the 80s when uh, they're all kids, uh, 1989 to be specific. And 1989 is just after uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, was released. In fact, in the movie, there's a movie marquee somewhere that says Dream Warriors. And they were considering having Pennywise show up to the kids as Freddy Krueger. Now, the director says the, these were serious talks, but he decided that he thought it would be distracting. He also thought the fact that, you know, New Line uh, Cinema owns Freddy Krueger, uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, and they were also the ones who were, you know, making it. He thought that that was too close, that New Line was too close to it, and it wouldn't come off well. Well, I, I'm going to call shenanigans on that. All right, now, first of all, having Freddy show up wouldn't be distracting. And in fact, it makes a lot more sense. Uh, first of all, because the movie takes place in 1989. Second of all, for the people that are watching the movie now, you got to think about this younger generation. I'm not talking about kids, young adults old enough to see an R-rated movie. Uh, a lot of them probably haven't even watched the original Frankenstein or Dracula movies. I mean, I can't even get my kids to watch them. And, you know, Lana likes horror movies, but she's just like, oh, this is stupid. It's in black and white. I hate it. Uh, th this would have uh, resonated with the people watching the movie. Okay, seeing a horror icon like that be the same if it was Jason or whatever. Uh, the other thing is, it doesn't mean it's too close to New Line. That just means you don't have to jump through hoops and cut red tape to get rights to use the character. You know, it would have been easy. You go to New Line, hey, can we use this character you own? Yeah, absolutely. It would have been easy. And would you have Bill Skarsgård, I believe his name is, play it? Or would you actually bring Robert England in to play... Uh, Freddy one more time. I mean, that would have been fantastic. Might have even rejuvenated the Nightmare franchise. Might have gotten people interested in that again. I, I have to say, I think this is a, a huge, huge missed opportunity uh, on the part of the people that made this movie. And you know, shame on you. You know, especially if you're not going to do it and then tell us you almost did. Do you know what I would give to see Robert England as Freddy back on the screen again? Just one last time. <sighs> That's just awful. You know, I, I think they really, really dropped the ball on this one. But that's just my opinion. Your mileage may vary. And it is time for the Geek Pop Blue mailbox, and we have a new letter writer this week. Mike Fitzgerald, who I called out for starting to listen to the show at the beginning of the show, has been sending me lots of letters. Uh, he's been going back and listening through all of the shows, so I am not sure if uh, some of these uh, emails may pertain to past episodes, but I am certainly very eager to see what Mike has to say. So uh, first, the uh, first one he sent me, it said, Greetings and salutations. In episode 17 of Geek Pod Blue, you recount performing at Sam's Lakeside Restaurant. I have been told stories from a member 
of my family who previously worked for a service that would clean the restaurant late at night after close, and they had encounters with ghosts at that lo location. Had you ever heard of the restaurant being haunted or had your own paranormal experience there? Postscript, I truly enjoy the show. Keep up the great work. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, now, I not only played at Sam's Lakeside, I also worked there at that time. Uh, I, I was a dishwasher, and uh, I spent a lot of time there, because pretty much anybody that worked at Sam's, you know, you, you got clocked off, and you went and you gave Sam uh, your paycheck back at the bar. Uh, so we all hung out there many, many, many late nights. Now, I would love to uh, be able to talk to some of uh, these people you uh, speak of, uh, Mike, because I've never actually heard anything about the place being haunted. And, uh, I mean, I worked there for quite a while, and, uh, you know, even after I stopped working there, I still liked hanging out at the place. It's, I find it very strange that I had not heard that because there have been many, many very, very late nights where we were there far longer than we were supposed to be. Uh, the next email Mike sent me says, Geekpot Andrew. Greetings and salutations. Since August 22nd, nearly daily, GeekPod Andrew waves at me on Facebook Messenger. I reply with whatever weird photo I can take or share. This seems to sedate him for the rest of the day until the next morning when he waves again. Sedate is the correct word. Is this an experience that is unique to me, or does this also happen to you and other members of the GeekPod uh, crew? Confounded, Michael Allen Fitzgerald. Uh, well, I, you know, I can't speak for the rest of the crew. I can tell you that he waves at me occasionally. Uh, however, he has waved at me quite early in the morning and i have kind of scolded him for that because sometimes he's waving at me and facebook goes off and I, there was i think there was one instance where i had actually woken up early and gone downstairs but had we waited until our alarm went off it would have woken up my wife so i i'm not sure really what's going on there but when it comes to andrew you know sedated is a good state of mind for him to be in anyway because he is a little odd uh next one the subject line of this one is Michael Blah, also from Michael Fitzgerald. Have you considered that the identity of webcam Nick's mailbox nemesis is his friend and frequent collaborator Tyler Harris? His motives remain a mystery to me. I can only suggest that he is possibly pranking his friend. That is a really, really good idea, uh, Mike. I actually, I, I've heard of Tyler, but I, I don't, I don't know that I've ever actually met him. So his name didn't really come to mind when we were trying to figure this out. I'm certainly going to look into this a little bit further. And finally, last one from Mike for this week, Michael Fitzgerald. I should say that since we, are, we have a Michael Blah, I should make sure I say your last name. Or maybe I'll just call you Fitz. I don't know. I'm not sure if that would offend you or not. Uh, he says, what are your thoughts on the decision for J.J. Abrams to write and direct Star Wars Episode Nine following the departure of Colin Trevorrow? Well, I believe I actually covered this earlier in the show, uh, but I certainly don't want to leave your question unanswered. Uh, I think that... It's probably a good idea if they want the franchise to remain consistent. Again, like I said, it's not a bad thing to go off in other directions, but I don't feel like that's something that Star Wars needs right now, especially not in the main movies. And we potentially will have Obi-Wan spinoffs, Boba Fett spinoffs, all these other places where they can experiment. I think the, the main series probably needs to be accessible to everybody and probably shouldn't turn into some weird avant-garde art film um, just for the sake of the consciousness of the universe or something bizarre like that. I, I, while I'm, I don't want to say it's always good to make the safe decision, I think this is probably the, the best choice. Um, Star Wars isn't meant to be... Um, you know, we're not looking. It's not supposed to be like David Lynch. This isn't supposed to be a racer head. It's supposed to be fun for kids, fun for adults. And uh, I think the bottom line here is, regardless how good Trevor Rowe is, uh, if if you can't listen to the people who are paying you to do the job, you don't have the job. You know, I I, I can't imagine that a 
I mean, you finally get to, to direct like Star Wars, biggest thing ever, biggest thing that'll ever be on your resume on IMDb, and you're a dick about it, and you're not doing what they tell you. Um, I don't know, man. I just don't get it. Thank you very much for your emails, uh, Mike. Uh, Fitz, I, I certainly look forward to reading more of those as this journey continues. Our last letter this week is from Nick Mormon. Um, Nick, maybe you can chime in on this whole Tyler Harris thing. It says, uh, too busy prepping for the con, but I wanted to say hi. Sorry about my grammar. I do these before bed a lot, but can't wait to see everyone at the con. But I will ask, how can my feet smell if they don't have a nose? Have you smelled your feet? I mean, really, it should be blaringly, noxiously obvious. And that is going to wrap up not only the letters segment. Why can't I just call this Geek Bob Blue Mailbox? It's just, it's stuck in my head because I refer to it as letter segment when I'm talking about putting the show together uh, with Paul. One of these days I'll get that down. Uh, but that's going to wrap things up for this week. Uh, you know, we are getting ready for the convention and there's a lot of stuff going on. I will be back here next week, though. I am not going to miss a single episode, I hope, ever. Uh, just make sure you tune in next time when I'm going to fire a ballistic missile over Japanese airspace and see if I'm told that I can't shop at Price Right anymore as punishment. Till then, tuck and roll, kids. GeekPod Blue is a GeekPod Network production. Executive producers Paul Showens and Hugh Allen. Concept created by Paul Showens and Hugh Allen. Intro is Opportunity by Jameis Breed. Closing is Bucket by James Breed. Both licensed for use by Dennis Johnston. Want to help the show? Leave a five-star rating on iTunes. Geekpod can be reached at contribute at geekpod.com or send us a tweet at geekpod. That's G33KPOD. You can also find Geekpod on Facebook and Instagram. G33KPOD. That's G33KPOD.